Spiked is free. We have no paywall. You don't have to subscribe to read our articles or listen to our podcasts. We want as many people as possible to have access to our content. And so we are determined to keep Spiked free. And we're only able to do that thanks to the generosity of our readers and our listeners. Your donations mean we can carry on doing what we're doing and provide an essential alternative voice on the big issues of the day. This is particularly important during the COVID crisis, in which Spiked has provided the space for lockdown sceptics, dissenting experts and others to say things that have become unsayable elsewhere. So thank you to everyone who donates to Spiked. If you don't yet donate, but you would like to, please consider doing so today. One-off donations are always hugely appreciated, but even better are regular monthly donations. Even £5 a month, less than the cost of a copy of The Guardian and a cappuccino, can make a huge difference to our work. So, to help keep Spiked free and thriving, go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Now, on with the show. Art is meant to be countercultural. So you would have thought that showbiz would have stood up to Wokery and gone, you know, we don't do this. And you'd find some edgy, individual, wonderful films not happened. So really, actually, politics has become the only place where you can go, I push back against this problem with the culture. They got me as an actor. They managed to get me hoofed out of showbiz. And now, at the timing of a London mayoral election, they're trying to get me as a mayor. It's a permanent cancellation. It's an extermination. It's communication. It's more powerful than cancel culture. Yeah. I think we should use the term. Yeah. When you're a heretic in the religion of woke, of which we all are, they will stop at nothing. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Lawrence Fox. This is Lawrence's second appearance on my podcast. His first appearance was shortly after he scandalised the chattering classes with his appearance on Question Time in January 2020. Lawrence is a former actor who has recently been propelled onto the political stage. He is standing to be the Mayor of London in the 6th of May elections. He is standing for the Reclaim Party, which is a party dedicated to ending the lockdown and defending liberty. Lawrence has become a key focal point of the culture wars in the UK over the past year. He has made a name for himself as someone who challenges identity politics and woke censorship, and who puts the case for freedom of speech and standing up for British values and British traditions. So Lawrence, you kicked off your mayoral campaign with the slogan, Unlock London, and the focus was on unlocking the city, getting it back to normal, relieving us of the burdens and the illiberalism of the lockdown. So could you just tell our listeners why you have such a problem with lockdown and why you think it should be eased more speedily than is being done? I don't think it should be eased more speedily than it's being done. I think it should never have ever happened in the first place. The guy came on the bus the other day and he said, um, what I've got a real problem with is the fact that the government are now slowly giving me back something that never belonged to them mm. in the first place, which was our liberty. So I think, look, we have the comparative evidence in, don't we, from Texas and Florida and various places. I think lockdown needed to have been explored 
in a broad debate, you know, which is what I care about most, which is the broadest possible debate. And I don't think it was. So my view is that London needs to be unlocked because of the huge damage to in all other aspects of life, you know, that isn't a fashionable disease like COVID. And I think it's not just remove lockdown now, it's never, ever even come near us with the consideration of a lockdown again. You know, mm-hmm. it's absolutely the most horrendous assault on liberty and then rather than just accepting their mistake they now want to double down on the vaccine passports and you're yeah. just like or what do they call them vaccine passports covid passports they've stopped saying it now haven't they and you're just like honestly why would we march towards this this is this is your papyrin mm. you know and then i was listening to a guy on um a priest and he said what about if someone has to produce a covid passport to come into my church you know that's not all the way God operates. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think obviously people have different views about lockdown and I, and I really respect people's Mm. views. Those that are pro lockdown and those that are pro anything. I'm happy to take on board, but my view is the lockdowns were a huge mistake and they remain a huge mistake. And I hope that one day we look back on this time in the same way as, you know, witch trials and things like that. And I mean, what's most striking about your stance is that it is, pretty unique in British politics. And the the absence of an anti-lockdown voice in the mainstream amongst any of the political parties is really striking. And you, I want to quote you here, you said that the two main parties are in a dreary race to see who can be the last to set the country free. So what do you think has happened to politics that it has become difficult to take this stand, to stand up and say, listen, I'm going to be on a platform of opposing the lockdown. I think the lockdown was a bad idea. That has now become something quite difficult to express in public. I think social media is probably to blame hugely for this. People do like likes and they don't like dislikes and comments, do they? So um, I have been liberated to some degree Mm. because I'm not trying to shill for my next acting gig, am I? Mm. My job actually, and in its description, is to campaign for freedom for everyone. And uh, therefore, I don't find it difficult. I mean, the amount, the levels of abuse you get, uh, they're water off a duck's back. But I wished Jeremy Corbyn had won the election, Mm. actually, because the Conservatives would have opposed this. They would. Mm. But the minute you give a so-called Conservative government the power to be authoritarian, you're just like, oh my Lord, the cat is really out of the bag now. It's shocking. But there, there are some very brave people. But again, on, on our side of the argument, the freedom loving side of the argument, everyone's an entrepreneur, right? We're not mm. organized like leftists. We don't come together and go, right, we've got to sort this out. So I think it's important that there is a political voice for freedom because there doesn't seem to be one anywhere that I can notice. So broadening out the freedom question, because your unlock movement, if I understand correctly, is not just about ending the lockdown and never having another one, but also is about unlocking freedom of speech, freedom of thought, all those other things that we used to value as a nation, but do less and less now. What other issues relating to freedom do you think are important from the London perspective that you think you could push if you were to become mayor of London? I think that London is it's just such a wonderful, and I know I hate using words like this because they've all got toxic now, but it's such a diverse and wonderful mm. place full of people from different, I just had to do called Yared drive me here. And he's a first generation immigrant from Somalia. And he went, I love your campaign. I think it's amazing. Mm. 
I'm going to vote for you. And it goes to show that what we do with identitarianism and all of this sort of stuff, instead of content of character, colour of skin rather than content of character, is we're dividing mm-hmm. people. So my view is that we need to have freedom of expression for everybody. And, and therefore, good policy decisions will be made by governments if you say, what's the broadest possible debate here? And you tend to, once you get a good debate going, the sort of extreme loons on both ends of the scale get yeah. slightly ignored. And then you have a much more solid and nuanced discussion. As I go out on the stump and someone will come up to me and give me their, oh, I used to like you until you got into this lockdown rubbish, that we can have a nice and ordinary conversation. So I think it's the most important thing is if you shut down half the debate, which is what's happened in our culture, and Sadiq Khan certainly stokes identity politics like it's going out of fashion, we're left with this very vocal authoritarian mob that run one side of the debate. Mm-hmm. And I think, no, what you need is you need the libertarians to counteract and to, you know, balance out the authoritarians. And what's happened is we've just got a very leftist heavy capital city that's being divided. And, mm. I, and I think that if you asked several Londoners, what's do you know Sadiq Khan for? They wouldn't say the violent crime epidemic, which he's overseeing. They'd say, well, he did that fireworks display yeah. thing with Black Lives yeah. Matter, and then he let the Trump blimp in. And it's all just virtue signaling. Yeah. London doesn't want to be a carbon copy of some East Coast American city. It's London, you know, it's full of history. And now you can do a walk, which is so tragic. You can do a walk, a tourist walk through London past all of the boxed up statues. And this is like, that's you, you're doing this, Sadiq. Mm. Trust our children to know the difference between a slave trader mm. and, a, and a great altruist. But you need both there. You cannot have yin without yang. You've got to be able to look at it and go, we're going to teach you about this. I want to ask you specifically about the statue stuff, because I know that one of the things about your campaign that made me laugh was your proposal to have loads and loads more statues, especially military ones. So I want to ask you specifically about that. But firstly, sticking with Sadiq Khan, I think there's something really fascinating about Sadiq Khan, which is the journey he's been on. And you can see this in actually a lot of Labour politicians where they've, if you go back five, six, seven years, they were relatively interesting politicians, or at least they worked within the understandable realm of politics. They would talk about housing, they would talk about transport. Sadiq Khan came in on a ticket of building more houses, which he hasn't done. I think there was an element of law and order in his campaign and all these kinds of things, normal political stuff. But as you say, now he is best known for the European Union fireworks display, for hating the vote for Brexit, for constantly virtue signaling against Trump and talking about identity related issues all the time, COVID being racist and all this absolute Mm. nonsense. How do you think that's come about in such a short period of time? I mean, I'm tempted to think this is also related to the social media phenomenon where you know that where what you end up with are politicians who play to a particular audience on social media rather than speaking to the city, speaking to their constituents. How do you explain Sadiq Khan's shift from a fairly normal leftish politician to this obsessive identitarian signaler. I think it's very dangerous what's, what's happened. But also the traditional left, which is an incredible place to argue with and to talk with, you know, I think I'm probably actually am a bit more on the left when it comes to these things. These people cared about social mobility. They cared about workers. Yeah. That's what they cared about. Mm. And now they don't. They've swapped social mobility for skin colour mobility or mm. sexual orientation mobility. And no one I come across on the street cares whether I'm white or 
brown or gay or straight. They're interested in what's going on in my heart and my head, mm. you know. And Sadiq is going, no, if I can divide everybody into little subgroups, depending on the, whichever victim status in the victim hierarchy they are, then, you know, you divide and you rule, don't you? It's representative throughout the Labour Party. You look at the Labour Party backbenches and often on the front bench, and I'm shocked by the lack of quality that they have yeah. in their MPs. And I'm shocked at the tiny constituency that they're talking to. Because, you know, whenever I go out somewhere, the, the people that really like me, they come up and they go, thank God, someone's speaking for the working classes. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm a posh bloke. <laughs> oh, it's a harrow. <laughs> you know, what do I know about the working classes? But they, <laughs> you know, there's a sense of he's thrown away as part of this identitarianism, which is globalist identitarianism mm. as well, because it's the, it's the suicide of Western democracy and, and a self-loathing of Western democracy. Is we've just forgotten everybody else, you know, and, and it, I find it... I think that social media definitely has fueled it. I mean, you get some terribly stupid, I mean, I hate to say it, but you read some of the, are you trying to get someone to go outside and punch someone else? Is that mm. what you're after? Mm. Why does politics and change have to come through violence? I wonder if we are actually entering that cycle of capitalism where we're actually in the process, capitalist and Western democracy is in the process of committing suicide. That's what it feels like sometimes. You're absolutely right to talk about how those sections of the left have very clearly abandoned the working classes. And that's the story of Brexit in many ways, which had a very significant number of working class supporters and voters behind it. And it gets written off as just a xenophobic cry, a bunch of stupid, ignorant, low education people who don't know what they're doing. And there's now this growing idea, I think, that even to talk about the working class is somehow racist, right? So if you if you talk about the economic conditions of the working class, people will say, well, why aren't you talking about the problems faced by black kids or Muslim kids and so on. So the way in which identitarianism has hollowed out the traditional left and, and made it into this husk, which is just obsessed with race, obsessed with gender, obsessed with sexuality, is really something quite depressing. And in relation to that, in terms of the people you encounter, because you've been out on the streets now for a few weeks, meeting all sorts of people, how much of a distance do you think there is between the kinds of people you've been meeting and the kinds of politicians we are now lumbered with, particularly in the Labour Party. Well, you saw Keir Starmer, didn't you, the other day? And <laughs> he was confronted with facts, wasn't he? And, you know, the guy just kept saying to him, the average age of people that die of COVID is 82 and the average age of people that die is 81. So it was a fact, this is a fact, you know, and you see that frustration. When I gather on my little stump in my modest way, people come up to me and it's just all say the same thing, which is two things. One is I'm desperate. And if we don't open up soon and they tell me horrible stories of what's happened. And the other one is that one sort of huddles into together and goes, it's so nice to be able to say what I think. <laughs> and I'm like, this is amazing because, you know, that's ultimately it. Yeah. It's the foundational principle of, of everything I care about, which is the, your ability to speak freely and for that view to be listened to and argued with robustly. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. So one of the other things that you are proposing for London which I think might be a bit of a provocation, is to erect hundreds of military plaques and statues to honour people who've won the George Cross or the Victoria Cross and other people. Now, if it is a provocation, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think putting these people on the spot, and we're talking about the kind of people who want to erase history, tear down statues, take us to a year zero situation in which only their morality counts and everything that came before it is wrong. So they are people who ought to be provoked. But what made you include an idea like that in your campaign? And why do you think the statues issue in London is an important one? 
um, I spend a lot of time thinking, as we all do, and I often think about people on those landing craft as they headed towards the beaches in Normandy. And I thought, what was going through their heads? And they must have been going, there's a reason I'm doing this. I'm doing this to for freedom. I'm, mm. you know, I'm resisting fascist authoritarianism. I'm, I'm, a, I'm fighting for freedom. And I think, you know, woe is us that forget that sacrifice. And I think that it's a great honour to be able to honour those that have served mm. us and fought and died and paid the ultimate sacrifice for our freedoms, both military and civilian in terms of George Cross. Yes, there is an element of provocation about it, because you're asking the inconsistent, intellectually fragile leftists to explain to me why you shouldn't put a hero who fought yeah. for their right yeah. to speak and their right to tweet out their vitriolic venom to challenge you to an argument. And, but also I think my children, I love, I, I'm most of what I do is, I know people say this a lot and it's very trite, but you are looking at the world as it is and the world and what, how it's progressing and you're going, I don't want my children to enter a, a world which we, we're on the cusp of actually at the moment. So I think the more reminders we can have of those of humble people who sacrifice themselves so that we can disagree, the better. Yeah, absolutely. It's about creating a connection between people in the present and the history that shaped our society, which is something I think that too many on the woke left just want to tear apart and have no understanding of how that can make citizens feel quite lost if they and don't know. Yeah. Along. This yeah. is what I keep saying to people as well. I just did a video about it yesterday about St. George's Day, because I think, you know, if you're going to provoke, carry on provoking, right? Um, <laughs> the point about being English or British or, you know, nation, the nation essentially is a family. That's what it is. It's just an extension of the family. And one of the great things about it is it's not, it is identitarian in a way, because you, you know, you're British or whatever, but it doesn't matter what skin colour you are mm. to be British, and it doesn't matter what sexual orientation you are to be mm. British. And so all of these things pale in significance, as Yared might driver was mm. he's as british as i am he may have been here for 10 minutes but he's as british as i am and he's as british as one of my mates who's got their family tree in the downstairs loo mm. taking them all the way back to norman times mm. it's about equality you know genuine equality not equity and it's it's brilliant in that way i think you know it's important i love the feeling i get when i learn something new that aha moment it is so satisfying and empowering With The Great Courses Plus, I can experience that feeling whenever I want. I've been enjoying the course Living History, Experiencing Great Events of the Ancient and Medieval Worlds. This course brings the ancient world to life like no other. You'll be among the jurors who condemned Socrates to death, at the gates of Rome with Hannibal, and with Alexander the Great as his men finally refused to take one more step into the unknown. I want you to try The Great Courses Plus. There is so much knowledge to tap into. You're going to love it. With The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited streaming access to thousands of video lectures on virtually anything that interests you. Learn chess from an expert, explore the cosmos, even get tips on how to train your dog. The possibilities are endless. And with The Great Courses Plus, the content is all thoroughly vetted, fact-based information that you can trust from some of the best professors and top experts in their fields all over the world. Plus, you can download The Great Courses Plus app and watch or listen on any device, anytime you want. I want you to experience that aha moment for yourself. 
Sign up for The Great Courses Plus today to start your 14-day free trial. And for a limited time, my listeners can save 20% of the annual membership. But this is only available through my special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brendan. Don't forget, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brendan. The other thing that strikes me about London politics, just to stick on this for a little bit longer, is how difficult it has become to talk about certain issues. I did a piece for The Sun a couple of years ago about the knife crime problem. And the thing I find most striking about it is how little discussion there is about it. I mean, there'll be explosions of discussion. People will say, God, this is a real problem. And it's happening a lot. And it's happening to a certain kind of person. You know, most of the victims are young black men, sometimes young white men too, but, you know, in not very nice parts of London, very often run down. These are the kinds of people we should be concerned about. These are the kinds of communities we should be seeking solutions for. But it's become one of those things that is just not spoken about. And if it is, it's spoken about in public health terms in a very narrow way, rather than people trying to grapple with it as a social phenomenon, as a crime phenomenon, as something that requires serious thinking and serious solutions. So on an issue like that, what would Lawrence Fox say to the people of London about that issue? I think that knife crime has been politicised again, because Sadiq's politicised everything. You know, any inconvenient truth he's politicises and says is about racism. So here's my policy to start with, and then I'll explain why. My policy is that you increase stop and search. And you stop and search my kids as well. So you don't, you're not racially profiling people. Obviously, you need evidence-based policing and you've got to find the areas where this is a major problem. But you make sure every kid who grows up in London knows that at some point they're going to be stopped and frisked by a policeman. You know, and that's whatever. You've got a bag of weed in your pocket or a knife, you know. But the idea that someone has a knife on them, and you've seen the horrendous video the other day where those two guys are just mm. being done. You know, these monster knives. Right. My view is that what you do is you say to the guy that you catch with a knife you go right you've got two choices here mate and you need to make it up you need to make your mind up by the time you get to the police station because that's the last i'm going to ask you once five years in jail or five years rebuilding your life and rebuilding your community and on both sides i as your mayor i will be right on the criminal justice system to make sure that you get the maximum amount of pain for carrying that knife or i'll be right on the side of the community to make Mm. sure you get the maximum amount of joy coming out of it but um, there's no only one way of dealing with crime and that is like at the moment when you're in the middle of a violent crime epidemic you have to deal with the you've got to stem the flow of blood i hate to be dramatic about it but it's horrendous what's happening Mm. You know, this whole thing about saying it's racist, it's like, what colour is the skin of the person that that he's going to stick a knife into? Mm. So am I being racist trying to save his life? And, you know, it's white kids stab white kids, black kids stab black kids. It's not about skin colour. There's obviously deeper cultural things that we all need to deal with in terms of the fact it doesn't matter what skin colour you are, lads need dads. You know, I tore a strip off my own children this morning for being rude to me. And there's something about a dad or, you know, a community leader or whatever. But these things are important. And then there, obviously there's a huge amount of evidence-based policing that needs to be done, but has been done. Look at what Trevor Phillips has done and all mm. these great, great people. That's what I say. But at the moment, it's like London is is not good. For It's, it's in the middle of a knife crime epidemic. Let's solve that. I think even a phrase like that, lads need dads, would be considered controversial these days. I mean, it, it's very striking that someone like David Lammy would have said that. And he Mm. did say that very often years ago. He would have talked about the problem of single parent families, the lack 
that is suffered by kids who don't have a father because fathers play a very particular role most of the time, a disciplinarian role and authority figure, inspiring figure and all that stuff. Someone like Lammy would have talked about that a lot in the past. But then when the Sewell report, when the Race Commission report raises issues like this, raises the fact that some kids in certain communities are less likely to have a father around than other kids, they get slammed as racist and propagating stereotypes and all those kinds of things. So I wanted to bring it on to the question of racism and what that means now, because you know this better than many other people, but the word racism is bandied around in what I consider to be a really actually quite repulsive way. And it is so obviously used as a silencing tactic. It's so obviously used against people who have never in their lives uttered a racist comment. And that's something that has swirled around you for quite a long time because you, for example, criticize Meghan Markle or you don't buy into the divisive agenda of identity politics. So what role do you think the accusation of racism plays in that kind of political world? I think there's two types of racism and the the identitarian mob likes to work in the really difficult area, which is systemic racism. And I think there's direct racism. So a friend of mine who's married to a black guy was called a wogsocket the other day while walking through a park. And she went up to these kids who did it and she went up to them and she went, there's a reason why there are no girls in this group, lads. Do you know what I mean? That's direct (laughs) racism. Direct Mm -hmm. racism needs to be really exposed Mm -hmm. and ridiculed so that we can say you ill-educated idiots. Mm. It needs to be mocked and, you know, just it's a horrendous, horrific direct racism. Systemic racism is making an assumption about a society which is absolutely, profoundly corrupt Mm. assumption. Mm. When report after report after report says that, you know, that we're behind Canada and New Zealand in terms of the, of, you know, all of the vectors that mark whether societies have problems with race, like, you know, whether we tolerate intermarriage, whether you'd like to live, you know, on the same street as someone different. Time after time after time, I very, very, very rarely come across racists. And when you do, they glare out because they'll suddenly, you'll be sat there and go, what did you just say? Mm. And it's, utterly repellent and intolerant. We Mm. do not tolerate it as a society. So this whole idea, what's so dangerous about this form of identity politics is at some point you're going to really upset the wrong white people, Mm. you know, who are going to go, actually, I'm fed up of this, Mm. you know, and they'll start using the tactics back and it'll start off with white people saying blackness is the problem, Mm. you know, and black privilege. And, you know, and then you're just going... The problem is, is people do want a much better society and they do want a much more harmonious society and we do want to remove direct racism. But this allegation of systemic racism has put race relations back and the hyper-racialization of society has put our ability to be cohesive and happy. You know, Calvin Robinson said to me he's never had as much racial abuse as he's had mm. since the beginning of the identity politics movement. And, you know, you, it, it takes away from you your own heart. You know in your own heart that when you look at someone, you don't really care whether they're gay or black or brown or anything. But this slur, it's a way of silencing freedom of speech as well. It's to say, you're a racist, so shut up. And I go, no, I'm not, and I'm not going to shut up. (laughs) The other thing about it is that it promotes this just relentlessly negative view of the nation. And so what was most striking about the incredible reaction to the race review that came from Downing Street, which essentially said that racism still exists. We all know it still exists. Some people are racist. And it also allows for the possibility of institutional racism. But what it calls into question is the idea that all of the problems faced by certain communities can be explained by structural racism. And it says it's much more complicated than that. 
a balanced, interesting, refreshing review. But the reaction to it was just absolutely hysterical. I mean, it was really deranged at points and it's ongoing. It hasn't ended. And what I found quite striking about that was essentially what these people were saying to the government is how dare you suggest that Britain might be a nice country? How dare you suggest that British people are not racist scumbags? That's essentially what they were saying. And so you, you realize that these people are actually dependent on a view of Britain as a disgusting place as a racist hellhole. And they depend on that because that's how they get their funding. That's how they get their moral authority. That's how they get their position in certain institutions and in society itself. So one thing that I was thinking in relation to the contemporary race discussion, which you've just outlined very well there, is that being anti-anti-racist is now quite important. Now, what I mean by that, I, I consider myself an anti-racist like you. I think racism is absolutely... I'm a bit careful on the anti-racist thing. I have to say I consider myself not racist. But the thing is, I think what we have now is this kind of official anti-racism, which comes from think tanks and charities and from guardianistas and from the Labour Party and all those kinds of things. This official anti-racism, which is not anti-racism as I would recognise it. Instead, what it is, is just this relentless promotion of the idea that this country is beset with racism and full of horrible people. And challenging that, I think, challenging the woke ideology which says that racism is everywhere, is actually quite important if you want a more racially harmonious society, which we do. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, I think the... The problem with anti-racism, I mean, there's two things. The Thomas Sowell quote, which I always love when he says, uh, racism isn't dead, but it's on life support being kept alive by race hustlers and etc. <laughs> but this idea of anti-racism is another very clever linguistic trick by the leftists, mm. which is to say, if you're not anti-racist, you are by definition a racist, right? So I like to take the position that I'm not racist. And I very, very much enjoyed Prince William very clearly laying that out, the linguistic difference. Because, you know, language is a very, very powerful tool to use, isn't it? So I was speaking to my lawyers the other day about this defamation case, and she said it was you, they were responding to a tweet that you sent to Sainsbury's, which was very clearly an anti-racist tweet. And I went, no, 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 stop there. I was calling out racism. It's different than anti-racism. So could you just tell us what that Sainsbury's tweet was about? So Sainsbury's tweeted out that they were creating safe spaces for their black employees in the supermarket, which I thought, that doesn't sound very good. Separating people on skin colour, what next? Water fountains. And so I tweeted back at them, this is proto-segregationism. And the blue check marks who get very upset and only read half of someone's tweet started screeching racist at me again. But they hadn't read the tweet because you know, I was saying, let's not be racist. Mm. Yeah, so everything kicked off then. So then I thought, okay, well, if you're going to throw a meaningless basis insult at me, which I've already had to sacrifice my entire career for, then I'm going to throw a meaningless basis insult back at you. Is that all right? So I thought, what's the most meaningless basis insult I can throw at them? And I thought, pedophile. So I said paedophile. And um, the court case that we're all about to enter is going to be very interesting, I imagine. Mm. So what we end up with very much in society is this extremely powerful, evolving language of ours. And we're, we're worried about how we use it, you know. And I think that, so therefore, I, I'm very nervous and sceptical of the term anti-racism. And also, I don't like its proponents because they see everything in the terms of skin colour. Mm. And it's just like genuinely... That's it, is it? That's the whole reason for everything. 
And it also means racists can, real racists can hide in plain sight nowadays because, you know, they're hiding amongst the other 70 million real racists in their culture. I think it's really divisive. That's interesting that you say that. I think the problem for some people is that anti-racism has obviously become a problematic ideology. Now, if you were an anti-racist 50 or 60 years ago, it would have meant something completely different. It would have meant marching alongside Martin Luther King and talking about character rather than colour and genuinely aspiring to create a post-race society. Now, anti-racism means that you have to bow down to the ideology of critical race theory. You have to take the knee to Black Lives Matter, which as a sentence, everyone agrees with who I've ever met. Everyone agrees Black Lives Matter, but as a movement, it's really, really dodgy. And it means you have to subscribe to all these weird ideas like white guilt, white privilege, the self-flagellation that all white people must engage in to to make up for the crimes of history. So I think one problem is that anti-racism has become this all-encompassing ideology that you have to obey, otherwise you're in big trouble. So what do you think is a useful way for us to push back against that without running the risk of being called a racist in the way that you and I and many other people have been? I think that it was said beautifully the other day, I'm I'm not sure who said it, but this anti-racism movement, as you say, it would have been totally different back on the bridge in Selma. But now what it is, is is actually the direct descendants of the Democrats who tolerated the Klan. What it is, is it's pure racism hiding as anti-racism. And all we have to do really is be courageous in saying we take a principled stance against racism in all its forms. It's not anti-racism. What you're encountering here is pure racism directed at you. And then what's happening is you're you're getting confused because you obviously not that many people can buy into their own white guilt, but you get a lot of people going, well, I can now be a white saviour and an an ally, as Sadiq Khan says. And he uses lovely words that make you feel like I'm actually doing something positive. But fundamentally, this starts in the first day children go to school. Yeah. You know, I have to unindoctrinate my kids on a frequent (laughs) basis. And I don't unindoctrinate them by filling them with my own ideology. I just ask them to explain themselves, where they come from, what they think, why they think it. The most complicated conversations we have is I we'll end up going, I don't agree. Mm. But it's it's to go, okay, why do you hold the view? What is your view? Why do you hold it? And sell it to me. And that's how it is. But this, it's essentially what's happened is the racists are now, they just call themselves anti-racists. I think that's actually a very good way of putting it, that it is racism masquerading as anti-racism. And the reason I think that's an important point is because I can't remember any time in recent years when it has been so acceptable to be openly racist against black people and Asian people as it is now in the woke era from the woke left. So if you think about the way in which they talk about people like Kemi Badenoch, for example, who they will, happened very recently, they will call her a racial gatekeeper. The implication is that she is an Uncle Tom character. She is a, as she said herself, she's, people imply that she is a, a house Negro, house slave. Or the way in which Priti Patel, as an Asian heritage woman, is talked about, she is seen as a token brown face or a brown face for Tory policies. I mean, this is openly, people say these things openly. Trevor Phillips has been referred to as a coon by one of the key promoters of the kind of woke view of of systemic racism. So all that stuff, I think, really does speak to something pretty ugly, which is if you are racially obsessed in the way that the woke elites tend to be, then you are going to become quite racist in how you think. Yeah. I mean, Dawn Butler called Kemi Badenoch, she called her a racial gatekeeper in parliament. Yeah. 
And it's fascinating, isn't it, how skin colour is very, very important all the way up to your opinion. So, you know, it's skin colour is not, it isn't just skin colour now, it's a set of political beliefs. So, you know, it's like, well, I'm sorry, mate, you don't qualify to be yeah. properly black <laughs> because, you know, you hold some socially conservative values. Yeah. Or in Prissy Patel's case, you know, she, she even said it. She said she went, you know, I'm a, I was a called Packy in the mm. playground. And you would have thought there would have been an outpouring of support for a young girl who's being racially abused in a playground. But no, yeah. no, it's because our politics are wrong. Yeah. It's the same as being gay nowadays you know you're not properly gay unless you've got certain gay views mm. and it's like well hang on a minute no it's the individual man it's like i've got a mate of mine who's gay who's you would never know he's gay in the world he's landed gentry and, he's like, Hello, morning, and you'd never know mm. but he would not be classified as gay now because he doesn't have the right views and he voted brexit it's mm. like you cannot be gay and vote brexit yeah. you cannot be black and vote brexit so it's like, hang on a minute, is this about skin colour or is this about an ideology? Yeah. So that's what I mean about this sort of festering amount of racism within it, is they're going, we'll divide through skin colour. But actually what it means is you join us and you make sure that you, you subscribe to this very, very racist ideology. Okay, on that issue, I want to just briefly raise the question of Meghan Markle. Now, the only reason I want to raise her is because your journey into what you currently do is in bizarre ways linked to Meghan Markle and the question of whether the media coverage of her was racist. And Thanks, you, Meghan. You said it wasn't, and then you got called a privileged white man. How, how could you possibly understand? All that stuff, which people will be familiar with, or they can look it up. It's very interesting. But that I, the Meghan Markle story, and it's moved on a lot since that happened to you. I mean, I think more and more people have become aware of the fact that she's a bit annoying, a bit of a myth spinner and, you know, a character of questionable morality and a hypocrite in some instances, as is Prince Harry. So I think some people have realised that criticising her is not racist, but actually is in some ways justified in certain issues. But other people have doubled down and they've doubled down on the idea that any criticism of her at all is has got to be racist and so on. Where do you stand now on the Meghan Markle saga, especially recently with the death of the Duke of Edinburgh and just the way in which all those things have shown a bit of a tension within royal circles as well as everywhere else in society. I think it's really tragic, actually. You know, I worked in show business for 22 years, so I came across my fair share of Meghan Markles, put it that way, both male and female. <laughs> you know, highly self-centred, narcissistic fantasists. So I'd spotted Meghan Markle yeah. as being that, and I was very surprised that someone turned around and made it about skin colour, because at the end of the day... I've got seven nephews and nieces and they're all mixed race and I, I never even mm. crosses my mind, you know. So um, I think where I stand with it now is how dangerous people like that can be and what good grifters they are. Because, you know, she's doing Netflix. She got 8 million quid for smearing the entire royal family as racist while the Duke of Edinburgh was lying stricken in hospital. You know, they, I think it's very sad. I think that it's an, uh, ultimately she wanted to deal a, a mortal blow to the monarchy by refusing to say who, what she claims was racist. I think also we're so heightened in this area that, you know, when I was married, my ex-wife had different colour eyes to me and I'm, we were constantly going on about this sort of stuff. It's like, you know, well, wonder who will look like and what mm. and it's like mm. suddenly megan yeah. the queen bee of wokery yeah. has decided what is and isn't i feel really sorry for harry and she's just gone like that yeah and squeezed all the life out of him he's gone from being a national hero to a national disgrace and mm. it's it's not down to it's down to his choice of bird sorry megan but that's how i feel <laughs> 
Hi, it's Fraser here, producer of The Brendan O'Neill Show. Over the past few decades, society has undergone huge shifts. It used to be the case that private citizens were largely that, private. But thanks to the internet, everything has changed. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. That's exactly what is happening to your record. Having your private life exposed for the consumption of others used to be something only celebrities, politicians or high-flying businessmen used to worry about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I use ExpressVPN. Did you know that there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't even have to tell you who they're selling it to or to get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP address to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn on ExpressVPN, I'm given a new random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and to harvest my data. The best thing is just how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, your phone, your laptop, your smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get yourself protected. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash Brendan and you can get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Brendan. Go to expressvpn.com slash Brendan to learn more. Just on the question of royalty, I think this is a point of difference between you and I. I'm a Republican, you're a monarchist. So we have different views on what should become of the royal family. Although I have warmed to the Queen, much to the um, horror of my colleagues at Spike, <laughs> in, in recent uh, months and years. But certainly after her reign is done, in my view, that should be the end of the story, because who wants King Charles or King William? So you're in favour of monarchy, I'm against it. But do you think that the the woke ideologies or which is not a very useful description, but we know what we're talking about, this kind of onward march of the kind of divisive agenda of identitarianism and the cult of victimhood and all these other things. The royal family will not be able to withstand that, will it? Because, you know, Meghan might have gone thousands of miles away now and all that stuff, but the Duke of Edinburgh is gone. The Queen will not have that long left. She's 95 years old. The younger royals are hyper eco-friendly and obsessed with issues to do with mental health and do buy into a lots of this agenda what do you think the future of that stuff will be i think the reason why the queen is so do you, do you remember her diamond jubilee and the look of shock on her face as all of the people came onto the mouth she just didn't know how much she's loved mm. i think but i see the monarchy as public servants you know and i really think she's put in a long shift mm. of public service and i i'm hard pushed to think where you'd find a president or anything that would do better than that but i completely agree with you i, I can't imagine 
Prince Charles mm-hmm. with a crown on his head. <laughs> I think they're, you know, the sustainability and equity diversity managers that they're going to bring in mm-hmm. to, to try and engage with these people. Our institutions are, are covered in it. So the monarchy will be done as well. I mean, it's, it would be very sad. I think William's pretty good. I think he made a very strong statement about, about that. But, you know, traditionally the monarchy are, are, are serve us. And I like that really. And I think Britain's, it's unusual, but yeah, I mean, God knows I can't see him with a crown on or, Certainly not. Um, maybe William. I don't know. What do you think? No, you're, you're, no, I hope not. But, I don't um, think it'll survive it. But the, now that all of our institutions have been totally corrupted, yeah. there's free reign to take the monarchy and turn it into whatever you want. And mental health is the next one, by the way. That's my my belief is that mental health, once we've got the critical social justice warriors who use vulnerable groups in order to destroy culture, they've gone through women, they've gone through trans people, they've gone, they've found a really strong vector with race, but next is mental health. And that's because you, you know, it's going to transcend race, isn't it? This were religion. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely one to watch. Okay. I want to ask you about cancel culture. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. So that's good. We can move on. So this non-existent culture, which somehow manages to swallow people up all the time, you've been targeted by it many times. It had an impact on your acting career. The idea that people openly said that you should not be employed, you should not get to act, you should not get to pursue that art form because of the views that you hold. So pushing aside the psychotic idea that cancel culture doesn't exist, which people do seriously make... How bad do you think cancel culture has got? And do you think it's going to get worse? It's really bad. So we did some private polling over this in terms of freedom of speech, where we got 50% of people are frightened to say them, speak their minds whenever I go anywhere, or if I open up my DMs or we get emails into the party office, they're all saying the same thing, fear of expressing yourself. It's really bad. And also what's great about it is that they don't stop. So not happy with dismantling my acting career, which let's face it, I'm actually quite pleased about because I turn on the TV and you'll watch a really good scene and then it'll cut to a sort of duologue about social justice between two (laughs) characters that's been written to sort of tick the woke box for Netflix. (laughs) So I I don't really miss that. And also I think the problem with art in my profession, you know, in my former profession is art is meant to be countercultural. So you would have thought that showbiz would have stood up to wokery and gone, you know, we can't, we don't do this. And you'd find some edgy individual wonderful films not happened. So really actually politics is art now. That's what it's become. It's become the only place where you can go. I push back against this problem with the culture, but the left would like to say cancel culture doesn't exist. And that, you know, that repetitive trope of freedom of speech, but not freedom of the consequences of that speech, all of these things. It's like, now I've got these people. Well, actually I'm suing them. It's going to be very interesting because, you know, they got me as an actor. They managed to get me hoofed out of showbiz. And now uh, the timing of a London mayoral election, they're trying to get me as a mayor. So they're like, it's a permanent cancellation. It's an extermination, excommunication. It's more powerful than cancel culture. I think we should use the term. When you're a heretic in the religion of woke, of which we all are, they will stop at nothing. Mm. You know, you, it's no accident that these people during the terror were just lining up, waiting for more heads to be chopped off. You know, mm. it's a mayhem that we're allowing culture to and society to play with. And it's very, very dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. I think excommunication is a good one. They want people out of polite society. I mean, that's, they want I think you they want, out of the public be, eye. They'd be happy if you were dead, actually, I think. <laughs> that, I have no doubt that that's true. Mm. And if you just look at the death threats, they get pushed towards JK Rowling all the time, simply because she thinks someone with a dick shouldn't be allowed into a, a women's domestic violence shelter. Yeah, 
<laughs> you know, how dare you think like this? But it's what's striking, I think, about this idea that cancel culture doesn't exist. I mean, it's such a ridiculous thing to say. But what makes it particularly ridiculous is that not only does it obviously exist, but it is, I think, using words like heresy and excommunication. And their favorite word on the woke side is erasure. If you criticize any person, you're erasing them. But that's far more apt description of what they want to do to heretics, yeah. which is erase any evidence that you ever existed, erase any, erase your words, erase your presence. But I think you raise a useful point there about the f- slogan, you know, freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from consequences, because I find that absolutely chilling. I always think to myself, that's, that is what the killers of Charlie Hebdo thought. Mm. They will have thought the same thing. Here come your consequences. That's really what they were saying when they massacred those cartoonists. And in my mind, the point I would make is if the consequence of my speech is more speech, I'm absolutely fine with that. That's what I want. I want disagreement. I want argument. People can ridicule me. People can say I'm right or wrong. That's fine. But if the consequences go beyond speech, so if it is censorship or cancellation or you lose your job or you lose your acting career or you end up in jail, which can happen, then that's very clearly an act of cancellation. That's very clearly an act of censorship. So the denialism about it is really amazing. But in relation to that question when you're talking to people and freedom of speech is a part of your campaign which is brilliant more politicians should have it as part of their campaigns how do you describe to people the importance of defending free speech why that is something that a political figure should take seriously i think without it you don't live in a democracy Hmm. and i think you live in a totalitarian regime so without the right to freely express yourself you know, there are already measures within the law, aren't they? I mean, my response to people sometimes is like, I love freedom of speech and I also love the law. So I love both. Mm. I think the consequences are terrible and getting worse. You know, with Chauvin, whatever your thoughts are about how that case took place, the president of America, so you've had uh, the elected president of America and Trump removed from all forms of social media. And, you know, after an insurrection, and then you've got the president, you've got a sitting congresswoman saying this man should be done for first degree murder, get in their faces. And you're going, Mm. this is incitement. I mean, it boils down to exactly the same thing as it always does, which is they are the exact thing that they accuse you of, you know. And Biden said, I hope that we get the right verdict. So what you're doing, if you get rid of freedom of speech, is you're getting rid of the absolute core tenets of what democratic life is, which is you're innocent until proven guilty, you are equal under the law and you have the freedom of speech. What they're doing in America at the moment, they're experimenting with your guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. Move to China. Yeah. You know, that's what it is. It's it, That's essentially what's saying you you must prove your innocence. Like, no, yeah. that's not how it works. So I think the, the con- well, to go back in my rather long and stupid convoluted way, it's the core principle of breathing in and out every day. Mm. It's that important to me. I agree with that. Just a couple of other things I want to ask you about. So you mentioned the, the trans issue and that is a central part of this kind of juggernaut-like ideology that is moving around the world and telling us what we should think and what we can say and so on. And it strikes me that that's quite a good example of the kind of things that we've been talking about, which is the shift from a more, a freer countercultural idea of how people should live. So for example, I have no problem at all if a man wants to dress as a woman and claim to be a woman and change his name and adopt that persona, that's absolutely fine. And it, it was fine for a fairly long time, certainly from the 60s onwards, towards a situation now where it's become 
one of the key components of contemporary conformism. So you have to accept that this man literally is a woman. You know, you have that mantra, trans women are women, which is just chanted like a kind of Harry Krishna chant all the time. And if you don't accept that, you will be cancelled, you'll be punished, you'll be called a bigot, you will have protesters greeting you when you speak at Oxford University, as happened to me, and you'll get death threats and rape threats. If you're a woman, they get it far worse if they dare to stand up to trans ideology. Do you think that's actually a good example of a depressing phenomenon, which is the way in which the more countercultural elements of the 60s and 70s, transgenderism was part of that. They would have called themselves trannies back then. Gay rights is another one. The struggle for racial equality is another one. Those kind of elements now feed into a really dispiriting authoritarian ideology that's not about freedom at all. Well, exactly. I can agree with you more. What's so interesting about it, when I look at it as objectively as I can, is that how laced and heavily um, laced with misogyny it all is. It's about the obliteration of women, as you say, and it exploits your basic human humanity, which is what's so dreadful. Because as you say, no one cares if John wants to become Jane mm-hmm. and put a wig on and have full cosmetic surgery if they want to, mm-hmm. so they feel like they're a woman. And I think you'd find the vast majority, in the same way as there's a tiny number of racists in this world, I think there's also probably a tiny number of genuine trans folks Mm. are a real problem. But I think most people with their natural humanity would support and encourage that. But what it's asking you to do in the same way as the anti-racism movement and all of these things, it is asking you to deny a biological fact. So it is destroying your brain. It's creating a a cognitive dissonance in your head, which shouldn't it be existing there. You should totally justifiably be able to say, you are a biological man, but not that you'd ever get into that chat with people, yeah. but you should be allowed to think you're a biological yeah. man. I don't have to repeat the mantra of you're a woman. No, you're not. And also, you know, you look at women's sport in America. Did you see the Australian handball player? Mm. I'm like, crikey, I wouldn't want to get on the wrong side yeah. of her, him. <laughs> it's pretty hard work. I was speaking to James Damore about this, actually, and he said that they noticed very early on when they were creating social media platforms that people would come across false consensuses. Yeah. They'd get behind sort of very odd situations and they had no idea how to deal with it. And I think that's interesting. So I think social media has fed this. It's all about compassion. You're a compassionate person. No, let's just say they're women. But for anyone who's thinking a couple of degrees further on, you're going, that's biological denialism. You're, yeah. you're taking out a whole, again, one of the pillars that holds up reasonable enlightened thinking yes absolutely and i'm one of the things i'm fascinated about in relation to the times we live in is the speed with which consensuses are formed now and the the mechanisms through which they are formed i mean we have gone from saying you know transgenderism is fine knock knock yourself out get on with it to saying that trans women are literally women that you can have a penis and literally be a woman female penis exactly a female penis you can read sentences in newspapers which will say her penis i mean this is orwellian twisting of words and language and then of course male rapists who identify as women are referred to as women they're recorded as women in terms of the in scotland at least in terms of who committed this crime they're allowed into women's prisons i mean crazy stuff but the consensus around that forges very quickly and i think that's a product of cancel culture pressure self-censorship where people don't want to be called a bigot, don't want to face that kind of cancellation, cancelling juggernaut and therefore suppress their real views. So it's interesting to me that you guys have discovered that. You've discovered through your polling and through your engagement with ordinary citizens that people are self-censoring or do feel that they lack a space in which they can say 
what they really think. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. As we, as we killed God, you know, and that, and that idea that people are fundamentally fallen and, you know, it's work, it's your work, it's your life's work to make sure you're not an evil bastard, mm. you know, and we've just, we've suddenly swapped this whole ideology that everyone's just wonderful. Yeah. And it's like, that doesn't help because if you tell a nasty, evil, self-centered, vile narcissist that they're a wonderful person and no one stands up to them and goes, actually, that was a bit sinful for the want of a better word, you know, it's really important that we have, we're destroying morality with all of this stuff mm. as well. And as you say, these things, are, they, they whip up so fast. And um, ultimately, the, the major problem I have with all of it is if your argument is good enough, so I believe in free speech again, if your argument's good enough, surely it should stand up to a little bit of scrutiny. Not it's game over for you if you don't say that John is Jane in in a real and meaningful sense. But it is exactly what um, Orwell was spotted and, you know, wrote so beautifully about is the fact that if you can stop the words meaning anything, then you'll stop people communicating. And yeah. that's that's what it's doing. I find it really hard. I don't know how you find it. I find it really difficult to have this cognitive dissonance going on in my head all the time. Because you want to reason with it. You want to go, okay, well, no, hang on. Should I, can that be a real woman? And then you go, no, 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 it's not a real woman. And you're just arguing in your own head. Yeah. I mean, you've got to take your hat off to leftists. They're very well organized. They don't really know what they want in the end, but they want enough chaos on the way there yeah. to make it worthwhile. Absolutely. The way I think about it is that so much of contemporary politics is about compelling us to lie or compelling us to say things that we know in our hearts of hearts are not true. So you have to say that this man is a woman. You have to say Britain is a structurally racist country. You have to say that there hasn't really been that much progressive advances in the United States and it's still a white supremacist nation. I mean, you have to hold these views, even though many, many people, I would say the majority, know that, that it's not true. America is not white supremacist country. A bloke walking around with his penis out in a women's changing room is not a woman. People know this stuff. And so that compulsion to lie really does capture the Orwellian nature of the times we live in, where you have to say things that you know are not true. Okay, just to move on to the close of the discussion, I want to ask you about a couple more things. Firstly, about the media and your relationship with it. You get a lot of flack from the media. You have done for a while, but now that you're an aspiring politician or you are a politician that has intensified in some way. So what's your view of the media? Do you think it's a lost cause? Are there some good bits, some bad bits? Does, does it play a problematic role in intensifying these kinds of trends we've been talking about? How do you view the media right now? Well, I'm quite upbeat about it in a way because the way that they've sort of abrogated responsibility to reporting facts and yeah. you know, it, it creates place for people like Spike to ex mm. exist. So I'm mm. thrilled about it in that way. But no, I think the media are in the main despicable, really, in the way that, I mean, I'm so used to it. If I looked at it in a fair balanced way, I'd go, why are you treating me in this way? I'm making fairly salient points that are held by a vast proportion of this yeah. population. But now, I don't know, I just, I feel sorry for them. But I, I think it's, they're very powerful, the media. And that's the other thing which is very dangerous. So, you know, certainly over COVID and over all of these issues that we've discussed, the media have been played a huge part in terrifying people half to death. But I, again, it's free speech. I don't want to regulate the media. Yeah. I would not want to regulate them at all. I just wish that there was a, a broader church out there and uh, of stuff you know so it's great that you exist and it's great that um, i'm actually going to start up some stuff when we go into a dormant phase now after my unless obviously on the very small chance that i don't get in as london mayor <laughs> the minimal, i'm going to start up a sort of a freedom-based 
thing that will come out from us in the reclaim party so that will be that will be what we do in the dormant phase as i try and find some candidates to stand against these nut jobs (laughs) in parliament in the next phase but i think what i find interesting about the media is why report crap yeah like surely you must go half the population you know you're i know that it's we but it's the only way you can delineate the population now that sort of the 52 percent that said you know what it, we don't all want to stay in Europe. Yeah. Why aren't you trying to punt yeah. to, to at least them some of the time? I think GB News will try and do it a bit, but I don't know. I just find it shocking that they're so, they're so crap. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's stuff they say about me. I did an interview for the Metro and I'm so careful now what I say. And I did it the other day and he, man- he managed to get one little inconsistency and he put all his, his energy into it. And I'm like, why don't you just cover my policies? Mm. You're he- meant to interview me for the mayoral campaign. And then, so I did the evening standard yesterday and I thought, oh, you know what? If you're going to make up bollocks about me, I'm going to give you some actual truth bombs. So I'll drop them on you. So we'll watch, we'll see with interest what happens <laughs> yeah, to the standard really, where I spoke like this. Mm, good. You know, it's good. like the way you should. And I think actually lots of voters want that. I mean, one of the things people used to like about Boris Johnson, although it was also always slightly overstated, is that he did actually say what he meant on some issues. You know, he did make jokes about the burger. He did say that climate change had gone too far, but he's kind of shifted on all these issues. But I think politicians underestimate how much people want an unspun, honest politician who, like them, or like ordinary people aspire to be able to do, will say openly and freely what he thinks. That's what a lot of people are crying out for. And defend your right, just defend your right to, because I, I always say to the voters who come up to me, and, you know, often people say to me, why, why should I vote for you? You know, you're not a politician. I go, because I'm not a politician. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a politician. I don't, I'm not interested in, in that sort of thing. I think it's, I think it's really, it's really interesting. We'll, we'll have to see how it goes, but people do need to be represented, all well, of us. You've just preempted my last question, which is, what would you say to people who say, why should I vote for you? So this is going to go out before the mayoral election. Lots of people in London hopefully will listen. So what's your brief sale to ordinary Londoners as to why they should vote for Lawrence Fox? First of all, let's see what what a crap job the professional politicians have done under this. And in in many ways, I do say to people on the street, okay, I'm much better qualified to be a politician than half of these Oxford educated PPE wankers. (laughs) You know, I've done 22 years of working with Chippy, Sparks, cameramen and all of this costume. Mm. I've met all facets of society, but at the end of the day, you're not voting for me. You're voting for the idea that I am standing for. So I was pretty Meghan Markleish as an actor occasionally, you know, in terms of being a bit narcissistic because I cared about my performance and how wonderful it was. But actually, I don't really care about me in this situation. I care about an idea which we're losing touch with in this country and across the West and the Anglosphere more generally. And if we lose that, you don't want to pass that on to your children. You know, you want to protect freedom. It's crucial. Lawrence Fox, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.